Psychologists have proposed the theory that there are two kinds of decision-making, the automatic and the systematic. It's the first part of our brain, they argue. Curses are born. We see a curse in the car belonging to James Dean, whose parts went into other cars that got into horrific crashes. We see curses in sports teams that go decades without a win, or in a strange black cat that's wandered into our home. Scientists theorize that people's belief in curses is a way to make sense of a chaotic world, to see something inexplicable and fathomable, and give it a reason to exist. Curses belong to some of the oldest cultures and are still practiced by religions the world over. Though the passing of them onto other people is often taboo, and pagan beliefs in witchcraft warn that any curse given will be delivered threefold onto the caster. For other people, a curse is simply justice, a form of retribution that could not be delivered in a natural way, and so looks for a solution in the supernatural. For others, a curse is plain revenge. Concentrated hate poured out into the world and set ablaze. It stands to reason that if death, violent events, murders, and wicked things bring about curses, then whole areas of this country are cursed, and have been cursed for a very long time. Some say that curses can be broken when wrongs are righted, when things are moved back into their correct position, when everything goes back to its right place. But sometimes a curse stews under the ground for hundreds of years, smoldering, fuming, and waiting to be set ablaze. Welcome to Destination Terror, your passport to the scariest places in the world. From haunted hotels to locations of unexplained creature sightings, and now places that we only visit in our imagination, we will travel to places that will provide excitement, adventure, and horror. Today, due to multiple requests, we are revisiting Centralia, Pennsylvania, a near-abandoned ghost town in the center of America, where a curse has kept a fire burning underneath the city for the past 50 years. Today's story is told by a different author. So if you're ready to take a trip into the dark, listen close and you might just take a ride to the dark side of the map, where if you try very hard, you might just avoid a premature trip to your final destination, here on Destination Terror. When Derek holds his match to the ground, it immediately starts to smoke. Within a few seconds, there's a wisp of flame. He laughs, laughs like it's the funniest thing in the world, and then drops the lit match on the ground. I jumped back the first time he did this. What? Do you think this place can be any more on fire? Derek has always been an idiot. We're in Centralia, Pennsylvania, waiting by the side of the road for the other people in the group to show up. We pass the metal venting tubes stuck in the ground like stakes. Derek, sure to get the whole thing in a long, looping video on his phone. For the talk, he says naughty as we drive further down the road we come to route 61 
to this road that looks like it's been pulled open by an earthquake. Cracks extend to the horizon, some of these holes stained gray with ash. Derek gets out of the car when he sees the condition of the road. Walking from here, I guess. When the others arrive, we make our way through the town center, carrying the equipment on our backs. It's bizarre, but not as eerie as I thought it might be when I volunteered to come out here. Derek wears his pack loosely. I want to swear at him for the equipment he's risking. When we reach the clearing, I look out towards the great white wall at the far end of the field. The others are already setting up a fire and small stovetop. Derek pulls the projector out of the great canvas rucksack he's been carrying. I pull the spools out of my own backpack. We begin to set up for the movie. This episode is sponsored by The Dead Files from Travel Channel. If you're listening to anything on the EerieCast network, odds are you love ghost stories. That's why I think you'll love The Dead Files from Travel Channel. Join hosts Amy Allen and Steve Deshavi as they investigate paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the U.S. Each host offers a unique and exciting perspective for every case. Amy is a medium, seeing and speaking to those who are no longer in the world of the living. And Steve is a retired homicide detective who uses public records and witness testimony to piece together the history of the haunted location. Each episode of The Dead Files features a different, real haunting to possibly help the family struggling with its effects. One episode on Falconer, New York, deals with a family who keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They frequently witness a shadow figure lurking around their home. Amy and Steve receive their call and investigate, with Amy using her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry, while Steve separately researches the history of the home, only to discover several previous residents who lived at the home died, confirming Amy's own findings. After their investigation, Amy and Steve must conclude with whether the house is safe to remain in, or if it's time to get out. I really love the deferring perspectives and skill sets between the two hosts, and I think that's why The Dead Files is a must-listen podcast for any fan of the paranormal and supernatural. Listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. It's not a ghost town because people still live there. In 2020, there were five people living there in Columbia County, in Northeast Pennsylvania. They live in the town of Centralia, where a fire has burned since 1962. The story starts with a sale. Native American tribes sold the land in 1749 for 500 pounds. The land was bought by a revolutionary war hero and a signatory of the Declaration of Independence, Robert Morris. Morris was above all things a businessman, financier, and an accountant. During the war, he had made a small fortune for himself through smuggling and privateering, and when the fledgling country began to bow under rampant inflation, he organized a national bank backing its funds until the new currency could be put into practice. It earned him the title of Financer of the Revolutionary War. 
Though he was never successful in this, the purchase of that debt by a private American financier put a curse in his brain that would follow him for the remaining years of his life. Speculation. Morris began to buy plots of land with other financiers all over the new country, selling them to other speculators for, at times, ridiculous profits. The more he got, the more he wanted, going further and further into debt with the thought of an eventual payoff. But eventually, he was caught in a land speculation panic, and those mortgages which he owned he could not pay. And so land parcel after parcel was taken from Morris, until his company's stock was completely sold off, his partners imprisoned, and Morris was left with some bedding, clothing, a quarter cask of wine, part of a barrel of flour, some coffee and a little sugar, and some bottled wine which was the remainder from a cask he had given to his daughter Maria. The next man to buy the land was Stephen Gerard, also a man who had come across an enormous amount of wealth early in his life. When the island of Haiti caught fire in the fever of revolution, the Spanish and the British, the Gerard's merchantmen, were able to buy the goods forfeited by the murdered French planters, taking some $10,000 in goods from the ships of this massacred class of landlords. Surrendered, he argued, because the owners couldn't be found. When the First Bank of the United States closed its doors on the eve of the War of 1812, Gerard offered himself as a source of credit to the United States, offering his services as an individual a bank of one for over one million dollars. At 80, a horse and a wagon knocked him down, its wheel running over part of his face, and he died within a year. He was the wealthiest man in America, so they said, at the time of his death, and possibly the fifth wealthiest American of all times, as of 1996, after Rockefeller, Carnegie, Vanderbilt, and Astor. His fortune after his death was used to open a boarding school for poor male white orphans who were the children of coal miners. Because when he had bought the land that would become Centralia, he already knew what a blood business that could be. In 1842, Centralia is bought by the Locust Mountain Coal and Iron Company. An enterprising mining engineer, Alexander Ray, stands in the middle of the street planning out a village. In his mind's eye, he can see streets, a grid of them, extending through the valley, residential lots filled with the laughter of children. He decided to call the town Centerville. After all, wasn't it right between Pittsburgh and New York? A day's ride to Philadelphia and Baltimore. He brought his family with him, a wife and six daughters. According to a local newspaper, he was one of the most estimable citizens of this region, one of the young generation of pioneers moving into fertile, savage land. He didn't know that he was at the center of the site of three-quarters of the world's anthracite coal, the oldest and purest form of coal in the world, coal that burns the longest and the hottest. The name Centerville didn't stick, though. There was already a Centerville, Schuylkill County, so Centralia became its name. On the way to everywhere, 
a city sitting on top of a giant coal vein, waiting to be pushed out in every direction, bought with money earned in war and bloodshed. The mines went up quick once the railroads moved in and could get in and out of the valley. The first two mines were the Locust Run Mine and Coleridge Mine. Soon after came Hazeldale Colliery Mine in 1860 and Centralia Mine in 1862. Continental in 1863. Once there was news that there was coal to be had, people were dropping shafts all up and down the borough. With the mine came work, and for a time, the misery was accepted. By 1873, and the world is in turmoil, the United States has built too much railroad track too quickly, and nobody's interested in paying for more lines running anywhere else in the country. Businessmen, like they had a hundred years before with land speculation, had bought too quickly and eagerly and were now losing their nerve. The Treasury had gone off the silver standard, and two great fires in Chicago and Boston had put the country in turmoil. What's more, in the background of what was a global financial panic, railroad workers had started to demand better pay and safer working conditions. By 1877, one-fifth of the nation's labor force was unemployed, while the rail barons and the coal barons got richer and richer. So the coal mines in Centralia and elsewhere began to look in new places for workers, for what was the life of an ordinary miner. If he came from somewhere else, he could be paid less, paid less to be glommed into freight trains heading into the wilds of Pennsylvania, to work in the dark, in the belly of some coal mine that might become his grave. These miners could be as young as seven, using sieves to separate slate from coal, chasing after cars with rocks to throw into the axle to slow them down. They could be as old as 50, pulling slate away from the coal chunks, chipped down to size by breakers, men of muscle and hammer. Deaths and serious injuries are in the hundreds each year, if there is a fire, hundreds could die in a day. There were no emergency exits, no necessary ventilation, no pumping or sound dampening, unless the owners say so. Workers, if they worked for 40 years, had a 1 in 10 chance of meeting their maker down in the dark. And always the work went faster and faster. The Harper's New Monthly Magazine in 1877 wrote, a miner tells me that he often brought his food uneaten out of the mine from want of time, for he must have his car loaded when the driver comes for it, or lose one of the seven car loads which form his daily work. There were many ghosts already in those dark coal tunnels back then. Some already had come to hate the taste of coal dust in their mouths, and the ache of sore muscles and fractured bones, and they wouldn't be quiet any longer. The year is 1868. Alexander Bray has found work as an agent for the colliery of the Locust Coal Mine and Iron Company. As an agent, he was tasked with delivering a large purse of money, some $500. The day was bright, but there was no heat in it. It was October, and his horse had been skittish all morning in a way he didn't like. He was nearly to Centralia, nearly home when he saw a watering trough for his horse, 
and stopped to get a drink, to rest his sore backside from a hard day's ride. It happened so quickly he didn't have time to react. They sounded like rocks, like the start of a rock slide sparking and kicking at him, tugging at his neck and ripping holes in his shirt. His face was hot, and when he pulled it away, there was red there on his neck. The three came out from their hiding spots along the road. From behind the trees, mean-mugged men with pistols, and one held the last round right against his temple and muttered something Alexander didn't hear because he was dead before he hit the ground. They took his watch and his wallet, bloodthirsty highwaymen interested only in money. That's what the town assumed. In Centralia, Alexander didn't return home, but soon enough his horse came wandering up loping, dragging reins not held by any rider. A posse was called up and found his body so close to town, many might have heard the shots if not for the blasting in the mines. His face was blackened by powder burns, like he'd been down in one of the mines, a kiss from the last revolver. It took 12 years for his murderers to be outed, tied to a secret organization called the Molly Maguires. Their names appeared in the local papers like a cursed word, like summoning demons up out of the ground. What were they? An old farmer's political group based in Ireland. They had come across the water, the same time as the Irish immigrants started filling their lungs with coal dust to earn a day's wage. In Ireland, they'd destroyed fences to dispute landlords scooping up all the leases in the countryside darkening their faces with burnt cork, sometimes going incognito in dresses in some sort of strange mummer's begging performance, demanding their food back, their land back, their freedom. Those that felt they were getting the raw end of this new landlord-driven farming cycle came together under the rules written by Molly Maguire about the code of how they should conduct themselves in fighting for their rights. Molly Maguire and her rules for how the Irish should find help in uncomfortable and unjust situations through the force of might. Molly Maguire followed her boys first to Liverpool. Then she followed them into Pennsylvania. So it was said, how much terror they actually committed in the coal fields of Pennsylvania is hard to recount. Most of the testimony against them comes directly from those who stood to benefit from their destruction the railroad barons, owners of those very same coal fields, and their agents. The Pinkertons, a detective agency known for their union-busting tactics, had one of their members go undercover in the area, trying to piece together four years of murders and robberies he believed were linked to the Molly Maguires. They fired a man who had come to them from Ireland, who could speak the language and the culture, and it was he who uncovered the Molly Maguire plot. The Pinkertons gave out information on miners suspected of being highwaymen, thieves who robbed payroll carriages and tried to ambush coal barons. Newspapers carried these stories, stoked by the coal barons. These Molly Maguires were violent folk, the papers warned. Criminal immigrants. It's no surprise then 
that local animosity in the coal fields turned against the miners. Under the cover of night, some of them broke into the house of a railroad worker, killing a man and his wife in the process. The crime? Suspected of being Molly Maguire's. The incident that started this campaign against the Molly Maguire's was arguably the death of Alexander Ray. Though one man linked to the crime was exonerated, ten years later, the gold watch Alexander Ray had stolen from his body was found at the house of a Molly Maguire sympathizer. That was all the situation needed to explode. This is some of the history published about that time. November was a bloody month, what with the miners on strike. In the three days around November 18th, a Molly was found dead in the streets of Carbondale, north of Scranton. A man had his throat cut, an unidentified man was crucified in the woods. A missing boss mauled. A man murdered in Scranton. And three men of another Molly Maguire's group were guilty of a horror against an old woman and an attempt to assassinate a Molly by the name of Daughtry. Followed, and Daughtry at once demanded the murder of W.M. Thomas, whom he blamed for the attempt. The Pinkerton detective story Joran James David, 1952. It's difficult to say if the Pinkertons were right in placing all the blame on the Molly Maguires, or if they were conveniently using them as a hobgoblin while they cleaned house. Pushing the union organizers and the Democrats out of the country, or burying them in shallow graves. Some historians said the trade union organizers came after the bloodshed creating an organization of thinking men instead of barbarous criminals. Others say they were right there at the beginning, responsible for as many men falling down abandoned mine shafts with a gentle push, like walking on air, as the other side. As is usual, both sides have their own legends of a curse created by blood spilled so wantonly. The Molly Maguires tells the story of a falsely accused miner on his way to execution, stamping a wall with a muddy handprint and saying that the hand would remain like the shame the country would have for hanging him. And a local priest, Father McDermott, after being kidnapped by three of the Maguires, assured them that judgment would one day come for them and their kind, and the only thing left standing in the town would be his Catholic Church. People say the Molly Maguires were still in Centralia up until the 1980s. They're hardy folk, and this place that they made they didn't want to surrender to anybody, and that stays true today. Centralia bloomed with the rise of mining, but the First World War and the Great Depression closed five of its mines. It was like every hundred years or so the country breathed in and out. Great mine shafts left exposed to the surface, the sights of so many speculating coal barons who leapt from their windows on Black Tuesday. Bootleggers limped along in Centralia, pulling coals from the pillars supporting the mine shafts, using ropes and animal teams to yank the ore and then run like hell. 
the city of Centralia bought all the coal mining rights in 1950. There were around 2,000 people left there. All kinds of mining went on in the 1960s, some of it even legal. Strip mining, open pit mining. There are still some companies there, operating clear far from the fire. No one can agree on how the fire started, but it usually starts with greed and ends with incompetence. The story started with a burning in the landfill, whether caused by firefighters intentionally to burn down some of the excess or caused by a trash hauler dumping ashes into the landfill, some of which were hot enough to reignite. Though each layer of the landfill was meant to have a fireproof layer of coal, the town was behind schedule, and somewhere underneath all that trash was a strip mine pit, a pit that connected like a vein to the rest of the interconnected network of tunnels underneath the city. Even then, people wanted to say that it was a remnant of the Bass Colliery Fire of 1932, that the fire had been beneath them for 30 years, sleeping. It slept again until 1979, when the mayor, John Coddington, was checking the fuel levels at the gas station he owned. When he pulled it out and checked the number, the dipstick was hot where it had touched the gasoline. Very hot, in fact. The gasoline was some 172 degrees Fahrenheit. A sinkhole in 1981 swallowed up a boy playing in his backyard, and he was only saved by the intervention of an older cousin. Had his cousin not pulled him out, he would have slipped further down the thousand-foot hole. The sinkhole began to belch hot steam. When it was tested, it contained lethal levels of carbon monoxide. More sinkholes opened up. More plumes of toxic gas and smoke filtering through the city. There was talk of trying to put it out, of closing off tunnels that connected the fire to more fuel it would use to burn and burn. But when teams went down into the tunnels, they found tunnels already filled with smoke and gas. Tunnels collapsed by bootleggers 60 years before. The government said there wasn't enough money to fight the fire that was jumping the barrier put up to keep it out of people's neighborhoods, their houses. It was a maze of people's greed and there was nothing to be done. Within two years, the government wanted people to leave and offered $42 million for them to do so. It would have cost much more than that to try and put the fire out. And the exodus began. 1,000 people left the city. Backhoes drove through front yards and tore through the grids of the streets that Alexander Ray had spent so much time imagining before they had burned his face with gunpowder. By 1990, there were only 63 remaining residents. The push and pull to get the rest of them out continues to this day, with five homes remaining in 2010, and the few residents left allowed to live out the rest of their days in that town, where the fire burns underneath the ground. Slowly, the things that make a city a city were taken away. The schools closed down, the churches, and finally the mail stopped being delivered. The city ceased to exist. The town has been retaken by the forest. 
roads in a grid in the middle of nowhere. The remaining church, St. Mary's, still holds Sunday service. They've taken the time to maintain the cemetery. Residents keep up upkeep, where a city might have been in charge. Someone paints the benches so that they don't rot. Someone looks after the landscape surrounding the buildings. Signs surround the city, warning of the underground fire, of ground that will swallow you up, and invisible gases spew from fissures in the ground. Steam and smoke poured from Route 61, buckling, flexing plates pushed open by hundreds of pounds of gas. They built a detour around the city, and the mounds of dirt that separated the town from the highway still exist, warning off visitors. Those who still live there claim that the fire never reached the town, that it was a story meant to scare those who still live there into giving up all that anthracite coal under the ground. The same story that Centralia had been dealing with for the past 300 years. The fire may burn for 250 more years. Somewhere underneath all that dirt, some hundreds of millions of dollars worth of coal is still burning, waiting for someone to fill the pool of it once more, to get greedy for just a little more. The honeycomb of coal seams underneath the town will continue to burn. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. I'm standing by the projector watching this gory French movie about a dance studio playing on the giant screen along the forest. I don't smell smoke, though some in the small crowd have been filming the horizon and showing each other on their phones. The strange electro music screams along the hillside. For a second, I see a figure at the edge of the forest line. After the movie finishes, people crowd around the projector and the concession stand, a stovetop fed by a diesel generator, wear t-shirts for the event, a Halloween horror festival, and other souvenirs are sold. The smell of buttery popcorn wafts over the field. Derek comes up to me, eating a hot dog, dropping chunks of onion onto the ground. Are you having fun? Some of the people say they're going to go into town. Is that allowed? There were a couple of people who lived in town, I heard. Nuts. Crazies. People who couldn't be driven off. I imagined myself falling into one of the many hundreds of thousands of sinkholes all over the city, the ground crumbling underneath my feet, and pulling me down and down into a pit of fire and smoke. Derek laughs. You know the air quality here is better than Lancaster now, right? I ask him if he's serious. Sure, he says. All them cars in the downtown make more carbon monoxide than this place nowadays. But the fire's still burning. 
Way down deep under the ground is what Jake says. I looked over to where Derek was pointing, and there was an older man standing near the keg, drinking beer out of a red Solo cup. A local? I had imagined men with two heads, with black soot all over their faces. His grandpa used to live here, Derek says. He has some crazy stories. Like what? Derek handed me his beer. Why don't you go learn something? The government came in and gave all the houses monetary amounts, adding moving expenses to it, and moved people out in mass. The town slowly filled with ghosts. The houses bulldozed. The walls covered in graffiti. Houses didn't sink whole cloth into the ground, no. But they did sag on their foundations. Trees blackened by the smoke pouring fully out of the ground. Sometime during the conversation, I asked Jake if the place really was cursed. This is a nice town, Jake says. It's a ghost town, and there's a lot of ghosts buried under these grounds. There are houses in the middle of nothing, roads leading to nowhere. It's like a very bad dream. Jake says that the scariest thing was thinking about how quickly it had all gone away. Smoke and heat and fire, burning deep underneath all of it, waiting to take it all. We had a good night. Some wandered into the town center, and I went with them, our flashlights playing along the graffiti-filled streets and exploring the blocks and blocks of empty land. We passed the famous house, held up by iron stilts and brickwork, from where the duplex had been cut in half. In one part of the town, Derek stops, laughing. The moon is bright above us, almost like a spotlight. Somebody cut the freaking grass, he says. I look around, thinking about all the eyes that may be watching us, all the people that I can't see, just out of my sight line. Relax, man, Derek says. Place is abandoned, but I can tell he's pretty spooked, too. When we get back to our cars, the sun has nearly rose a bright line of pink over the horizon. I'm very tired, but I just have to drive back to the hotel, less than 20 minutes away. As we got back to the car, parked along the side of the road, I noticed that someone had left a piece of paper folded into a square on top of my car. I froze in place, turning to Derek and said, Did you put that there? Derek is shocked still staring at the note. No way, is that real? I stare at the note, which is written on a scrap of paper, not a loose-leaf sheet. It's somebody messing with us, I say. It's gotta be. Derek walks up to the car and snatches the letter from underneath the wiper blade. He starts to read, lips moving, and pauses. Where the letter dips, I see the writing, scrawled pencil, written in big, shaky loops. Oh, God, he says. What's it say? He just gets into the car, 
quickly turning on the engine. Can we get the hell out of here? I stare at the note. We hoped you enjoyed our town. Now we must ask you to leave and never come back. This land is cursed, but it belongs to us. It will belong to us forever. We loaded up our projection equipment into the back of the car, and we got the heck out of there. I listened to the note and never went back. Eventually, I was able to get my indie movie-making career up off the ground, but I never really had the stomach for horror movies. We talked to the other crew at the time, and they never brought it up, so we didn't either. I try not to think about the note anymore, the person who wrote it, living in a place that held so much history, so many ghosts. These days, I hold my breath when I walk past cemeteries or drive over bridges. I avoid walking under ladders, too. I definitely believe in curses. Thanks for joining us again to explore the cursed town of Centralia, Pennsylvania and its ghastly history. Tune in next week as we go to another terrorized destination. I'm Carmen Carrion. Remember, you can send me suggestions and stories of haunted places to my email, carmencarrion at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at carmencarrion. Be sure to check out EerieCast.com for more horrifying podcasts. Until next time, be careful of the ground underneath your feet. Terror can be found right here at Destination Terror. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.